Hello, and welcome back to Mercy Christian Church's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Paul Van Heisteda. Today's message is from Kevin Wattell's recent sermon on the parable of the tenants from Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46, entitled, The Rejected Son Becomes the Cornerstone. Enjoy, and God bless. morning. It's awesome to be here again uh, to bring you God's Word. Pastor Ian had the week off, so he called me in, and uh, I'm excited. We're opening up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, hold them out and turn with me to the New Testament, to the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. But before we read that, I'm going to give a little bit of context Uh, And before I do that, I want to start by asking you all uh, a question. Here's my question. You can ask it to yourself. If If you had one week to live, if you knew you had one week to live, uh, what would you do? Who would you see? And what would you say? If you had one week to live, who would you see? What would you do? And, And what would you say? If you had one week to live, what would you do? Maybe you know that uh, country song, uh, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I rode a bowl, 2.7 seconds, Fu Manchu. Maybe you'd do those things. Maybe you'd visit some old friends. Maybe you'd uh, go and see your grandkids or your great-grandkids one last time. What What would you say if you had one week to live? You know, the history books are full of Uh, people's famous last words, what what would be yours? Maybe you would get your books in order. You would finish up your final will, and you would tell the people uh, closest to you how much you love them. In the passage this morning, uh, we have Jesus looking down the barrel at his own death. Uh, We're midway through Passion Week. This is Jesus' last week before he's killed on the cross. And he knows his death is coming. He's been uh, alluding to it to his disciples uh, pretty clearly that this is the path that he has to go on. And the last week before his death, the gospel writer Matthew tells us uh, where Jesus went, whom he saw, and, and what he said. The last week before his death, Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear uh, to his listeners and to each one of us exactly who he is and what he has come to do. So that with, with that in mind, let's, let's look at our chapter, chapter 21. It's important that we understand the context coming into our, our text. So if you have your Bibles, you can kind of follow the chronological uh, order with me. On Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, being hailed the king. And on Monday, he entered the temple and he was cleansing it and overthrowing all these tables and, and driving out all these uh, animals and people selling animals for sacrifice. And now we come to Tuesday morning. Uh, Tuesday morning, Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. And Jesus, he enters the temple again. And there's this confrontation that he has, a confrontation between these chief priests and uh, between these uh, Jewish leaders, and there's this standoff between the two parties. So Jesus is standing over here, he's teaching people, and and these uh, Jewish leaders are standing over there. And the tensions uh, in the room are really high. The the Jewish leaders, they're, they're, they're furious. They're furious how Jesus came into Jerusalem being hailed the king. Uh, 
They're furious how he handled cleansing the uh, temple. And so they, they, they come up to Jesus and they ask him this question. Sorry, Jess, I'm not, I'm not in the text yet. We'll get there. It's okay. So there's a bit of a standoff, and they, they ask Jesus, um, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And then Jesus challenges them back with this question about John's baptism, which we don't have time to really get into this morning. But the, the point that Jesus is expressing to them is, is that these, these Jewish leaders, they're totally blind. They don't understand who he is. They don't understand uh, the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus does is he tells them a series of parables. And it's the second parable that we're going to look at this morning and we're going to spend some time with. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 21, and take a look at verse 33. We'll read that parable together. So this is Jesus speaking. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's, let's kill him and take his inheritance. And so they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And now Jesus switches and he addresses the crowd. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Before we get into the message, let's just bow our heads and, and come before God in prayer. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of this message, the beauty of this passage. Spirit, move in this place so that that through this passage we may come to love you and, and, and come to love you even more. And Father, help me to speak slowly and, and clearly and concisely, and may you receive all of the praise. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you're taking notes, um, the text, uh, the theme for this text is going to be this up on the screen, the rejected son, 
becomes the cornerstone. The rejected son becomes the cornerstone. And I want to do something a little bit different. Uh, I want to comb through this parable and, and these teachings of Jesus three times. And each time I'm going to focus on um, a different one of the three sets of, of main characters. So what I want to do first is look at the wicked tenants, and then we're going to look at the patient master, and then finish off with the rejected son. So point number one, the, the wicked tenants. Well, our passage begins, verse 33, Jesus says, hear another parable. And this parable that, that Jesus is about to tell the people is, uh, is unique for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one thing, it's, it's one of the three parables that you find in each one of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record uh, this parable. Each one of the writers uh, wants this parable to be one that you don't miss. And the second thing that's unique about it is that it resembles the start of, a, of an Old Testament song. A song that um, all the people that were in front of Jesus in this temple likely would have known and, and likely would have been familiar with. And we're going to read that uh, together. So if you have your uh, thumb in Matthew 21, then flip over to Isaiah chapter 5. I want to quickly read Isaiah chapter 5. It's just a couple of verses. And while we do that, I want you either to take some mental notes or if you have a pencil with you or something, underline in your Bible different aspects of this psalm where you, where you see the similarities between the two. See if you can find key words and key phrases that, that sound very similar. So Isaiah chapter 5, starting at verse 1. My title says, The Song of the Vineyard. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, and cleared it of its stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes... Why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow up there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel." And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So the song um, starts in much the same way that, that Jesus' parable does, right? There's this vineyard, uh, it's built very securely, it has a tower and it has a, a wine press, and, it, and it's set up in such a way that, that it will produce good fruit. But instead, the fruit it produces is, is bad. And the lesson of the song, as, as the passage tells us, is, is God's chosen people, Israel, um, they, were carrying out, they weren't carrying out his will. They weren't uh, loving God. They weren't upholding justice. They weren't being a light to all the nations around them. That's what they were supposed to do. But Israel, they didn't do any of these things. And so the song ends with these really stark words. Uh, he looked for justice, 
but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. So in the parable that Jesus teaches, he starts out with the same kind of theme, right? But, but, but quickly, the scene looks very different than the one in Isaiah 5. And this would have really thrown off uh, the people that were gathered listening to Jesus. If you go back to Matthew 21 and, and verse 35, we get introduced to these characters that aren't in the original song. We get introduced to the wickedness of, of these tenants. So the, the master of the vineyard, he, he sends these uh, servants to collect the fruit during the harvest time, right? And the fruit is, is good and it's ready. But, but these tenants, they're, they're not willing to hand over the fruit. And what we read in our, in our parable, what they do instead is, is quite horrific. They, uh, they kill the first group and then, and then they do the same thing to the second. How do we understand... Um, What's happening here? What, what, is, what is Jesus' point? What is he trying to show his, his listeners? Well, in, in, in one sense, what Jesus is doing is he's making a, a long story really, really short. He's playing off of this uh, song in Isaiah. It's almost like he's doing a parody version of, of the song and telling it through a similar theme. Uh, and, and what he's doing is he's retelling the, the history of like the whole Old Testament like this song in Isaiah, God set up Israel to produce fruit. And, and when they didn't produce fruit, well, he sent prophets and he sent priests to these people so that they would uh, be warned and, and, and urged, you know, turn back to God. You guys can't be living like this. And everyone uh, in the temple hearing Jesus tell this story, they would have known these Old Testament stories, right? Israel, they had uh, a, a long legacy of of abusing the prophets, abusing the priests. Here's just a couple examples. The prophet Jeremiah uh, was beaten on multiple occasions, thrown into a pit, and then stoned. Elijah and Amos, they were banished and forced to hide in caves. Ezekiel was murdered after preaching a sermon. Habakkuk and, and Zechariah were both stoned by Jews living in Jerusalem. And Zechariah got chased into the temple and stoned near the altar even. And I could go on. These are just a couple of them. It's horrific how, how God's messengers were treated in the Old Testament. Uh, but then we read Jesus' parable that, that the master, he then sends uh, his son. But the son is also killed by the wicked tenants. And then Jesus finishes the parable with this question uh, to these religious leaders, right? What will the master do with these wicked tenants. What will the master do with these wicked tenants? And the answer is, is obvious, right? How would you answer that question if, if you heard this parable and Jesus said, okay, well, how would the master deal with these tenants? The answer with the obvious, verse 41, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Good wordplay there. And he will rent the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So that's, that's the correct answer. But, but here's the thing. These religious leaders at, at this point are, are totally blind that this is about them. They're totally blind about who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus is talking about them and he gives it to them straight up. He says that they are, in fact, the wicked servants, or the wicked tenants, and the kingdom of God will be taken away from them 
and given to other people. It's, it's very, very direct. Jesus is not beating around the bush here. He points the finger right at them and says, you're these wicked tenants. And things like this, they, they happen all, uh, all through the Bible, right? If you uh, flip through um, God's narrative, um, often what God does is he, he flips the script on people. Uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might know uh, this Old Testament story of King David falls into sin with Bathsheba, and the, the prophet Nathan shows up and, and, and directly comes up to David and says, uh, here's a story about injustice, and, and David gets all fired up and says, that's wrong, that's wrong, you know, that person has to die. And then Nathan flips the script, right, and, and he says, no, you're the man, points it right at him. Jesus is doing that here. He's, he's pointing at the Jewish leaders, and he's saying, you're the murderers. You're the ones uh, rejecting the son. You're the ones rejecting me. And instead of, uh, instead of fessing up and believing in Jesus as the Messiah, they, they hardened themselves and, and they sought to arrest him. Right? They, they rejected Jesus. That's what we see in verse 45. They sought a way to arrest him. But you know, in, in some ways, we can, we can often be like these religious leaders. See, one of their, one of their biggest problems uh, was that they were really, really good at looking at the sins of everybody else, but they weren't very good at being reflective of the sins in their own heart. What do I, what do I mean by that? Flip forward uh, just one chapter, Matthew 23. It, it gives us this really interesting insight uh, into the lives of these religious leaders, um, Jesus calls down these seven woes on the teachers and the, and the, and the law and the, and the Pharisees. What's a woe? A woe is like a, like a curse almost, like a, you guys gotta, you gotta fix this. There's something terribly wrong in your life. And it's interesting, the very last one I want to read with you, and bear in mind what we just talked about with, with these Old Testament passages and how they've tra- uh, treated the, the, the prophets. Look at verse 29 of Matthew 23. said, this is what Jesus says to them. I can hold on. There you go. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have not taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. You testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. What's Jesus saying here? Well, he's, he's inferring uh, here that these religious leaders, the ones that are, are in the temple, the ones that are listening to him, they are exactly like their ancestors who killed the prophets. Whoa. That's a, that's a whoa. They looked at their ancestors, and they said, yeah, you know, if we lived in that time, we would have never done those things. We would have never killed the prophets. We would never have done uh, things like that. We wouldn't have messed up that bad. But they are, they are so blind to the fact that they're about to do something far worse than any of their ancestors have ever done. They're about to kill Jesus. They're about to kill the Son of God. And Jesus is telling them, uh, there's blood on your hands. And they're about to add, add to it. Uh, but these, these leaders, they're just so blind into their own sin. 
And I wonder, just as a, as a point of reflection, I wonder if you've ever been confronted with some sin in your life, right, by, by maybe a friend or, or by your spouse, someone that you respect. And, the, and they called out a sin in your life, and instead of admitting it, instead of repenting, uh, you just put up some walls and you've hardened yourself and you get all defensive. Well, you know, it was my fault or what about him or her? And listen, if, if you search your heart right now, we did that during our prayer of confession, but if you just take a minute and seriously look at how you're living your life and, and comparing it to how God calls you to live. Are you, are you being uh, cut to the heart by the sin in your life? And, and, and desperately trying to work to cut it out of your life? Or are you just thinking, ah, man, like it's not that big of a deal? All the while being really good at judging the sins of everybody else. It's amazing that God loves us. It's amazing that he uh, comes to us. What does God do with his people? Well, he shows us just really how patient he is. And that's what we're going to see in our, our second point. Uh, the patience, the patient master. So moving on through the story, uh, the first thing that's worth noting about uh, the master is that he really cares about the vineyard and the tenants uh, that he hires. That's what we, we get to know right away. Jesus tells us uh, the master uh, plants this vineyard, which is a big job. Ask any farmer. I know the, um, the greenhouse people are working like crazy right now trying to get their um, crops in order. That's a lot of work. And then he, he puts up a fence all the way around it. He builds a tower on it so that the tenants can see enemies coming from far away. And he digs a wine press in it because he knows that this is, this is going to produce good fruit. He's, he's prepping for that. And then he goes and he, and he specifically chooses tenants to take care of his vineyard. And connecting this uh, to the Old Testament and, and to the whole Bible, God, God loved uh, the nation of Israel. He, he set it up to succeed, to do his will. He gave them uh, good laws to be governed by. He, he provided for them uh, with all that they needed. And he promised them uh, way back in the time of Abraham and then like many times over and over and over again all through the Old Testament that he would be their God and, and they would be his people. Even when they were unfaithful, he would be their God. But as we saw earlier, the nation of Israel, they, time and time again, they turned away from God. The leaders of the people would, would not listen to God when, when prophets and priests uh, would call them to repent and to follow the Lord again. And in the parable of, of Jesus, the master, he sends these two groups of uh, servants to the tenants. And both times, the tenants, they just ignore uh, the command of their master to give the fruit that they're owed, and instead they do something horrible. They, they kill these messengers of the master. And then we come to verse 37. Verse 37, it says this. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. They will respect my, my son. And it's, just, it's at this point, you just want to stand up and, and, and shout at the mass, like, what are you thinking? No. 
No, don't do that. It's a trap. It's, it, it, it's not going gonna, it's not gonna to go how you think it's going to go. Your son is going to die. What are, you, what are you thinking? Don't send in your son. Send in like the army. Send in the SWAT team. Do something. But, but don't send in your son. They don't deserve your son. They don't deserve this. But the master, he would, he would just turn and he would look at you with all the love and the universe in his eyes and he would say to you, I did this for you, didn't I? Did you deserve it? Paul picks up on this. This is Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. See, this story of, of a long-suffering master, it's meant to illustrate to us uh, the even more gracious, the even more uh, patient character of God the Father. But, but here's, the, here's the really important difference between the master in this story and God the Father. See, the master in the story, he sent his son thinking, surely they will respect my son. But see, God the Father, he sent his son knowing, surely they will reject my son. And it's, and it's here that we see this intertwining thing happening of, of God's love and, and God's uh, judge, judgment, um, God's justice being intertwined. He is, he is so patient with us. And he was willing to send his own son to restore uh, to, uh, to those whom he loves and, and, and then to destroy those who, who turn against him, who turn their backs on him. And who does this rejected son represent? Well, of course, it's, it's Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see in our, in our last point here, the rejected son. Follow with me in your Bibles, verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When I was studying this passage, I was thinking to myself, I wonder how, how Jesus said this. I wonder um, how he spoke these words. You know, did he, did he say it kind of in a lament? Or did he uh, speak it with this uh, righteous anger? Was his voice full of judgment towards them? Or, or did he just kind of say it matter-of-factly? Or were there, were there tears rolling down his cheeks as he, as he prophesied his own death? Obviously, obviously we, we, um, we can't know that, but, but we can know that there was this deep sincerity within his words. And another passage that helps us grasp this is, is the same um, chapter, chapter 23, after Jesus calls down all these woes on them, he finishes in, in verse 37. And you can, just, you can just picture him after calling out all these sins on them and, and, and just explaining to them how they've, how they've totally missed the point. Then Jesus cries out this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those to who, to you, and stone those sent to you, 
How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. So Jesus, he reveals his, his heart here. He's, he's loving the people who, who in just three days, they're going to crucify him. In just three days, they're going to drag him before Pilate, and they're going to demand uh, that he die, that he's, that he's beaten and, and mocked and whipped and, and nailed to a wooden cross. And what just blows me away is that when Jesus is hanging there, and every single breath is just pain as he rubs his nail scarred uh, um, back up, up the splintered cross, and, and he could call down a thousand angels on these people that have orchestrated his crucifixion, and what does he do? doesn't do that. Instead, he uses one of his precious breaths and he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. This is the heart of our Savior. Okay. Uh, so if you're tracking and you're realizing that, okay, I've just went through all three of my points and I haven't even touched my theme yet, you're right. And we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that right now. I want to show you how uh, this theme pulls all these things together. I want to show you that through verse 42. So look at verse 42 with me. Uh, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? This is after he tells the parable. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This quote, it's going to pull the whole story together for us right before our eyes. Uh, remember, it's, it's Jesus' last week to live. What will he do? What will he say? Well, he chooses his words very caref carefully, as, as Jesus always does, but but he does something very intentional here. He, he quotes from the Old Testament, from Psalm 118. That's the same psalm that we just uh, sang together before we started the message. And Psalm 118 is, is special because it's a song that was sung during the Passover, which is being celebrated in Jesus' last week of his life. And what, why is that significant? Well, well, the Passover is the celebration of the death of the Lamb. A death of the lamb so that God's people would be saved from death. And what's incredible is Jesus will become this Passover lamb. He will die so that we can live. He will take on our sins so that we'll be forgiven. He will take on the punishment for sin that's, that's meant for us so that we can be set free. See, when Jesus quotes Psalm 118, he's, he's showing all these religious leaders that he has all this authority. Remember, we started with that, right? They were like, by what authority do you have to do these things? And Jesus is quoting 118 and saying, listen, I have all the authority to march into Jerusalem. I have all the authority uh, to cleanse this temple. This is my Father's house. I have all the authority to heal, all the authority uh, to teach, because I'm the cornerstone. I'm the thing that everything is built on. That, that cornerstone imagery, that's really cool. And I doubt that Colin would let me uh, not explain this to everyone. Colin's a, a mason here. And so I'm just going to take a few minutes. I want to explain uh, how, how important this cornerstone imagery is. Uh, I have a, a picture of a friend of mine. Uh, this is Noah Hart. 
and um, this is the summer, he was working on a stone project. And not a lot has changed in masonry over the last 2,000 years. And especially when it comes to, to natural stone and, and, and all the hard work that still has to go into it uh, with just hammer and chisel. And the mason, he's an artist, right? He, he goes to a pile of stones and he scans the pile and he looks for one that has roughly uh, one square face and he takes it to his workbench. And then he takes his pencil and, and squaring tool and, and, and just carefully marks things out. And after a few quick, uh, quick strikes of the hammer and chisel, he makes the stone presentable, square, and ready for the wall. But the trickiest and the most crucial uh, part of a stone wall is the corner pieces, and especially the bottom corner stone. And the mason, he'll spend a lot more time working through the pile of stones, looking for a stone that has roughly two square faces. And then he'll bring it to his workbench, and that's when the hard work begins. Because each strike of the hammer uh, on the chisel, it has to be perfect. It has to be perfect. If you have a misplaced strike uh, and you end up cracking the stone, it's unusable. If the stone is not perfect, it has any structural issues in it, it ends up just being chucked aside, thrown in this big pile of stones. You end up just dumping in somebody's lane away somewhere in a farm uh, and never to be used on the building. Here's the point. To have the stone that the builders rejected become the cornerstone is a total reversal of what anyone would expect. This, this grand story of, of redemptive history orchestrated by God is, is beyond anything uh, that we would have ever expected. I love how the message uh, does this. Um, the message has, is, a, is a, a paraphrased translation of the, uh, of the Bible. In Isaiah 53, it has this beautiful line to introduce Isaiah 53. And it says this, Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this. Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? Who would have thought that the master would send his son? Who would have thought that the father would send Jesus, his own son, knowing that he would be rejected, knowing that he would die on a Roman cross? A total reversal of what anyone would expect. Do you, do you feel that this morning? Do you see that this is just a crazy story? That this whole story of redemption is it's just so amazing and so uh, unpredictable. Why would the master send his son? Well, it's because he loves us. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, okay, that's really interesting. I like this parable. It's, it's a cool story and it's probably really good for these Jewish leaders that Jesus is talking to to hear it, right? But where do we fit into this story? Where, where do I fit into this story? Well, let me show you. Read with me verse 43 and verse 44. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. I'm going to untangle those words for a second. See, our, our default position in life, our default position is to be the wicked tenant. Right? We, we reject the master. We, we don't listen to him. We want to live a life our own way, take whatever he's given us and give nothing back. 
See, our, our default position is to, to reject uh, the Son and to reject Jesus. And apart from the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives, without the transformational power of Jesus, we're, we're just like these Jewish leaders, really. We would reject the Son. We would reject Jesus. I want to just sit in this for a second because some of you here are still in that camp. Right? You, you haven't listened, uh, you haven't believed in Jesus Christ as, as your Lord and your Savior. And listen, this morning, the, the Father, He is so patient with you. He is so patient, but there is still this urgency here. An urgency that, that was missed by these religious uh, leaders. They rejected Jesus. They, they wouldn't listen to the warning. And so what ended up happening to them was they were rejected by God. And I, I beg you, don't make that same mistake. And think that you can reject Jesus or, or just be whatever about Jesus. Because the cross, it demands a response. And, it, and it's super clear here. Either he's the cornerstone of your life in which everything is built on or you are crushed by him. And it is a, it is a heavy warning. But with this warning, there is a glorious hope. This is what Mark in the beginning of the service was talking about. There is the gospel. This is the glorious hope. This is why we gather here and we praise Jesus for what he's done. Because when you place your hope in, in Jesus, he becomes the bedrock of your life in which, which everything is built on. And you, you enter into this story as the people whom God has given his kingdom to. See, in verse 43, this is, so, this is so amazing. This is so amazing. The kingdom of God will be taken from you. He's talking to the religious leaders and these Jews who are rejecting Jesus. And he says, and they're going to be given to people who produce its fruit. Now, there may be some of you here who have uh, Jewish ancestry uh, that has believed in Christ for the last 200 years. That would be amazing. I would love to hear about that. But for the majority of us, I'm assuming that uh, either your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents or someone in, along the line in your history um, came to Christ and, and shared that faith with you, and you came to Christ, and you came to Christ. Or here, you don't have parents who are believers, but you're here, and you responded to the faith, and you've said, yes, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. And what's, what's so amazing is that when that happens, you get integrated into this story. God chooses you to be part of this, to be added to his church, and, and he says, okay, you're, you're part of this, you're in this. Now produce my fruit. Produce fruits of thankfulness. And so I asked you in the beginning of the sermon that if you had uh, one week to live, if this was the last week of your life, what would you do and who would you see? And what would you say? And I just wonder uh, this morning if, if that answer has changed. If this is the last week of your life, would you, would you come to faith in him? And would you give your life to him, knowing this was your last week? Or would you share this incredible gospel with the people that you love and know that don't know it? How would you spend the last week of your life knowing this gospel. See, in Jesus' last week, with one of the last opportunities he has to preach, he tells this parable and he makes it abundantly clear to everyone that he is this prophesied cornerstone, that he is the Messiah. And we'll close with this. The son in the parable, right, he, he got 
tossed out of the vineyard and he got killed, never to rise again. But that's not the same for Jesus. That's not the same for Jesus. He, he died. He got thrown out of Jerusalem and he died on a Roman cross. That's for sure. He got taken down and he was buried and he stayed in the grave for three days. But that's when everything changed. Then that's when the great reversal of all great reversals happens. And Jesus rose from the grave and he changed everything. He, he has become the cornerstone on which this whole story of redemption is built. And this is the gospel. This is, this is the story of hope that we bring. And this is the story of hope that changes our lives. This is the story of hope that we, we bring into our week and, the, and that gives us hope. This is the gospel. This is why we gather together to praise our awesome God. So let's, let's do that. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the cross of Christ. It is in, it is in Christ alone that we find our hope. He is our cornerstone. Jesus is our solid ground. He is uh, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Jesus is our comforter. He is our all in all. Spirit, fill us with the joy of this truth. Comfort us if we are in need of comforting this morning. Give us peace in our hearts if we are anxious. Give us hope if we feel hopeless. Give us love if we find we're unable to give love. Give us conviction of sin if we are in need of conviction. And help us to fix our eyes on the cross each and every day until Jesus returns or he calls us home. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Mercy Christian Church's weekly podcast. I hope you were blessed by today's message. For more information about Mercy Christian Church, please visit us online at www.mercychurch.ca. Thanks for listening, and God bless.